Hello, my loves. Welcome back to another episode of Straight Up, the weekly celeb culture podcast hosted by me, Kathleen, and my fellow journalist and bestie, Alana. How are you doing, honey? Hello, gorgeous ones. I am very excited because this has been one of my favourite interviews, I think, for the podcast. None other than Alistair Campbell, former spin doctor for Tony Blair's government, and a very unusual guest for us, I would say. Certainly a little bit of a different one, and that's kind of what makes it so brilliant, isn't it? I loved doing someone totally different, not a musician, not around our age. As you guys will hear, Alistair definitely wasn't afraid to take the piss out of us, to be quite frankly flabbergasted at many points about the lack, well, his perceived lack of our general knowledge, as you will hear, and we hope you agree. It's a specifically, uh, let's say... Generational. 90s based. Yes, generational. That's the way to put it else. Exactly. General knowledge that we were lacking in. We didn't want to hide anything from you guys. We've left it all in. We haven't cut it all out. Alistair, if you're listening, we love you. We love your new book, as you well know. He is also co-host of the hit podcast, The Rest is Politics, in case you guys haven't listened. It is a massive hit. He co-hosts with former Tory MP Rory Stewart, and he has kind of reached new heights. He's really one of like the top dogs of British politics, despite him being very honest about the extremely sorry state of affairs that we currently find ourselves in. Yes. So his new book is called But What Can I Do? And it is actually genuinely such an important book because it really is trying to inspire young people to get into politics. He believes that we are stagnant in terms of our politics. It's just run by old private school educated men. He wants to build up confidence. right. Exactly. He wants to build up confidence and communication skills outside of the private school system which is a very noble thing to do. Do go and read the book, as we say, but What Can I Do is available in all good bookshops. But essentially, he argues that if we all develop our skills of advocacy and persuasion, we will be in a much better position to essentially get normal, trustworthy, fantastic, passionate young people into politics. He looks at why it's gone so wrong, how the media has played a role in that. We also talk about that quite a lot in the interview, as you'll hear. We had a great time. So we recorded in a pub in North London in a Highgate, which is near his house. The pub was called Dartmouth Arms. Thank you very much for hosting us, Dartmouth Arms. And I have promised that I will mention the uh, supper club that they have every month for North London foodies. The next one is going to be held on Thursday, the 29th of June, um, in collaboration with Uncharted Wines. 50 quid a ticket for five courses and a welcome drink. It is a very very gorgeous pub and I'm not just saying that because we were there in fact I chose that to host the wonderful Alice Campbell because it is so gorge 50 pounds for five courses as well goodness me that's reasonable and you can add on a wine pairing for 30 pounds very very decent and tickets are available at the disappearingdiningclub.co.uk so guys I must say if I can say so myself that the interview is absolutely... <laughs> Go on, honey. It's absolutely hilarious. I laughed so much listening back it to it. Funny. And Alistair has assured us that he will, that he listens to every single interview he ever does to make sure that people don't edit stuff out. So hello, Alistair. Yes, so hello, Alistair. We have now read your book. He got very cross with us for not reading his book ahead of the interview, which is very naughty of us, but we didn't have very much time. And I was at a festival over the weekend before we recorded. <laughs> so <laughs> full disclosure. <laughs> we have now read it. We have our own signed copies we trotted back to Alistair's place with him after the interview we got to have a little nosy around which you all well know we love doing had a little look at his art had a lovely check out of his garden his kitchen 
He was actually getting some work done to the house, which is why we didn't record there. He also meant to us, as we trotted along, his very lovely text from Jamila Jamil, who had just dropped him a quick note to let him know how much she also enjoyed the book, how urgent and vital she found it. Do pick up your copy. And Alistair, do share this episode on your socials if you're listening. Thank you. Yes, please. And do <laughs> shout us out on The Rest is Politics. I would like a personal Thanks. shout out. <laughs> Enjoy, honeys. Let us know, as always, what you think. Do drop us a DM on Insta at Straight Up Pod. Rate, review, subscribe, and let us know who you want to hear from next time. Now, for listeners that don't know, we go a few years back. I was your lowly sort of assistant at GQ. I would do your travel and your hotels for the big GQ interview every and month cuttings. and cuttings I would sometimes chip in with the odd thought with Paul Dacre for instance <laughs> um you with Paul Dacre who we never did in the end he bottled it oh yeah I don't remember uh Dylan Jones the editor decided in the end that he thought my obsession with Paul Dacre was going too far because <laughs> I think we agreed we'd go down a more positive route because it was so done to say he was evil but let's talk about how he was a good editor <laughs> maybe Dylan didn't want that no, on I his editorship. No way, no way. <laughs> um, but we had some fun, and I think I met you for the first time when you were wearing your kilt that you had spoken about often on email at the GQ party. At the awards? Yes. Which, at which, the one I think where I wore the kilt for the first time, Rory Stewart was the politician of the year. Did you meet him then? I don't know if I did. I just remember him winning and thinking... Because he was wearing tartan trues. And I remember he thinking, was? Yeah, you kindred can't... Kindred spirit. No, you're not a kindred spirit. You either wear a kilt or you don't wear a kilt. You don't wear tartan trues. Um, but anyway, so that was probably the high point of his political career until he started doing a podcast with me. Yeah, well, things were looking good at that point. They? You often wear your kilt as well to the Christmas lunch, don't you? It's do. for all smart occasions. Well... The great thing I like about a kilt is that you can wear it to black tie events without wearing a black tie. I hate black tie. I never understand why anybody wants to go to a black tie event, but people still do. And so if you wear a kilt, you can wear a red tie with your green kilt, Campbell Tartan, and nobody notices that you're not wearing a black tie. I have to say, I was listening to an episode of The Rest is Politics, first plug. Um, Second plug, I plugged it all. Oh, all right, second plug, sorry. (laughs) I've mentioned my book yet, haven't we? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh, But Rory was talking about making his own... Sporran. From a dead badger he found on the road. I I kept waiting for him to say I'm joking, but he didn't. No, I don't think he was joking, because the thing about a sporran, you can either have them leather, or you can have them made out of animal skin. And... I've got a bit of both. The one I've got at the moment that I wear at the moment is leather. Um, but yeah, you could make it out of a badger skin but quite easily. You've never made your own? I've never made my own, no. I mean, I haven't made an omelette, never mind a spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair enough. But you have yeah. written 17 books. 18. 18 books, mm. God. It was the new one that we haven't mentioned yet. The, the new one is called, And What Can I Do? Oh, no, it's I, not. No, it's, it's not. Don't fluff what it. Can I do? <laughs> but what can I do? But what can I do? It's because I'm a bit more appropriate cadence. Well done. Thank you. Well done. Yeah. But we'll get to the book in a moment. But what we want to start with how we will start, which is asking our guests for some embarrassing or surreal or funny anecdotes that they've had with other celebrities. So you've interviewed quite a few. I can imagine you being quite a scary interviewer. A tough interviewer is maybe more, more accurate. What do you think has been uh, your most memorably difficult interview where you've been interviewing? Oh, Lord. Uh, I've done loads of interviews because, of course, I used to be a journalist. I used to be a proper journalist, as it were. Well, I wasn't really a proper journalist. <laughs> At the mirror. I'll tell you, one of the, the one that pops into my head was with Paddy Ashdown, 
when he was leader of the Liberal Democrat Party. And I was on the Sunday Mirror, and I went down to his house in Somerset, and I sat down, and I put the tape recorder between us, and we talked for an hour, and at the end of the interview, I realised that I had no batteries in the tape recorder. Oh, no! And I hadn't taken any notes. And his lovely wife, Jane, said, oh, that's such a pity, isn't it? She said, well, I'll go down to the corner shop and get some batteries, and then you'll have to do it again, Paddy. And he did it again. Thank God she was there. Well, Thank God. yeah. And, and to be fair, Paddy quite liked talking. Um, but and I got a very good piece out of it. I think sometimes it's like, I don't know if you've, you've ever had a situation when you're writing something, you lose it, and you feel absolutely wretched that you've lost it. But actually, sometimes it's better second time around. Yeah, because then you yeah. clarify your thoughts. Yeah, so I think actually the, the, the second time we did the interview, we both worked out the bits that didn't really work, so we didn't bother with them. So you actually had a better interview? I think so, yeah. Um, embarrassing moments... I want, um, Eric Clapton, this wasn't an interview, but I bumped into Eric Clapton at a cricket match. Uh, we've since actually become reasonably good friends because we're both sort of, you know, mental health people. Um, but I did say to him, almost in the first sentence, the nearest, these words, the nearest I ever got to killing myself was at one of your concerts, which Ooh. came out a bit wrong. Yeah, gosh, yeah, I yeah. Um, and, and it, But it was true, it was true. I was at an Eric Clapton concert at the Albert Hall and I was feeling profoundly suicidal and um uh yeah so i told him that story as we watched the cricket what do you clarify that it wasn't because of the music it wasn't because of the music if anything uh the music might have helped actually because i do find music is a great sort of stress reliever um what else who had you gone there with fiona my partner and some friends who'd got us the tickets and i had said to fiona i don't want to go i really feel crap i don't want to go out but she sort of said, oh, they'll be so disappointed, that usual thing. So off I went. And, um, yeah, and I wandered around. We were in the gods, and I wandered around. I remember looking down. Eric Clapton was playing on the stage, and he was on his own. He was playing some kind of, I can't remember the song, but it was like one of his slow ones with very little backing. It was very quiet. And I remember looking down and thinking, the trouble is, if I do it here, I'm going to land on that person there, and I might kill them as well. So I stopped. Oh, he goes. God. And you told him that too? Yeah, I told him everything. And he took it pretty well? Yeah, he did, yeah. And your friends, I mean, he's quite a provocative man. Yeah. Well, he, he contacted, <laughs> I did a documentary about depression, and he just contacted me out of the blue and said, you know, he'd love to talk about it. So, um, yeah. So, free tickets for you from now well, on? Yeah, I wouldn't mind paying. Um, <laughs> what else? Why don't you have something to do with celebrity in the title? don't understand that. It's a good question. Why don't we have something to do with celebrity? Because you know title? it's evolved over the years. It has. Who right. knows where rest of politics might be yeah. in a few years? Why don't you years? have something that's related to culture vultures? But vulture is like a different sort of word. You celebrity, yeah, leeches. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> celebrity leech. Parasites. <laughs> we actually started the podcast as like a behind the scenes of the music industry. Um, angle because we were being tactical and when we started the podcast and we're both young journalists at GQ we didn't want to do anything that would step on anyone's toes or make anyone tell us that uh, we shouldn't do it and you were also trying to impress Dylan Jones who was the editor because he's obsessed with pop culture well <laughs> slash Probably. trying to also get past him and not interview anyone that he'd be like why the hell are you doing that for your podcast and not for GQ uh, yes yeah why are you interviewing us Alice yes. are you deflecting no I'm interested <laughs> yeah yeah. Well, thank you for asking, because it actually is quite a convoluted chronology, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is. I think straight up doesn't work. Well, title. you know what? I would expect nothing less yes. than some uh, tough love from <laughs> Alistair Campbell. Well, we might change it very, you know, for the launch of this new episode. Um, on the topic of celebrity interviews, you've got an unlikely friend then in Eric Clapton. Who else have you interviewed and very much enjoyed speaking to, perhaps been a little bit surprised by? 
Uh, one of my favourite interviews at GQ was the Archbishop of, Canter- Archbishop of Canterbury. Yes. I really enjoyed that interview and we become quite friendly. I'm, <laughs> I'm like his pet atheist now. <laughs> I am. He's sort of, he, I, think he, I think he thinks one day he'll be able to get me over. Have you always been an atheist? Yeah, well, since I was a child, since I was raised as a Presbyterian, uh, we went to church and Sunday school every Sunday. Um, but yeah, so ever since I've sort of been able to think for myself, I think I've been an atheist, yeah. I have moments. I've, I have very heavy moments of spirituality. Do those coincide with moments of sadness or depression? They can do. They can do. They often coincide with death. You know, if somebody close to me has died, uh, they often coincide with being in amazing scenery. I'm a bit mm. of a landscape freak. The luminous. One of yes. our favourite words. Our favourite words. What, voluminous? No, no, the luminous is Oh, like right. The term yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, so okay, that's sometimes, that sometimes happens. What's the most beautiful bit of scenery you've seen in England? Well, can we say Britain? We can say Britain. Because most of them would be in Scotland. Fine. Although last week we were in Wales and I was really blown away by parts of Wales. But I'd say Scott, for me, I think Glencoe actually is the one that, and I know it's not just because the Campbells massacred the McDonald's there. It's just <laughs> there's something epically, powerfully wonderful about it. There's a very... Um, I don't know if we're allowed to mention Jimmy Savile. But well, there's a, there's depends a, what you say. He's a celebrity, and, and this is your celebrity, <laughs> as I understand yeah. the podcast. There's a, there's a Glencoe story about Jimmy Savile. What's that? As you start the drive up from, through, through once you get right into the kind of, the really sort of wild stuff, there's a, there's a white house up on the right, and it's boarded up now and covered in graffiti, and that was Jimmy Savile's, one of his... Places Holiday homes. People to, yeah. Oh, God. Mm. Did you ever meet Jimmy Savile? Yeah, lots of times. Did you think he was weird? I did think he was weird, but I didn't think he was... Well, it's interesting. The, the very f- No, I met him a few times because I was on The Mirror and The Mirror was quite into celebrity stories when I was a general news reporter. And I first met Jimmy Savile, I think. might not have been the first time, but I met him when... Somebody went on Jim Will Fix It asking to be a reporter for a day, and they spent some time with me. Yeah, and went on and came into the newsroom and did that stuff. So I went, I actually got somewhere hidden away. I've got a Jim Will Fix It badge, having been the fixer. Um, so then what happened was we did this experiment in a little village in Devon called Peter Tavy, mm. where we persuaded the entire village to stop watching television for a week. And we, like a social experiment, we took their tellies away and we then sort of, we, we spent, me and, and several colleagues at the Mirror spent the week in this village just covering what happened and how people were coping. And That's a great yeah, experiment. Yeah. Fun. So, I want to know so the it was quite good. Yeah. It was quite good fun. And we got all sorts of sort of quite funny and interesting and silly stories. And then towards the end of the week, the editor said, listen, we need to get a big celeb to turn them back on, okay, to get the tellies back on at the end of the week. So... We all sort of sat there going through our contacts book, and I thought, well, about Jimmy Savile? So I phoned Jimmy Savile up, I had his number, and I phoned him up and said, would you fancy coming down for it? So we come down, he, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll get the train down to Penzance, pick me up in Penzance, and then we can drive back to Devon, right? So he, he wanted to get the, the sleeper down to Penzance, I pick him up at six o'clock in the morning, whatever, and then he said, can you book somewhere on the way to where we're going, which was near Tavistock, so as I can get changed into my gold army suit and all my rings and all that stuff, right? So I picked him up at Penzance, 
and we drive up to Gunnis Lake. We stayed at, I think it was the Gunnis Lake Inn we stopped. And How old are you at this point? I was 20s. 20s, yeah, 20s, I think. So we get, we, we get maybe 30, no, 20, I think it was 20s, yeah. So we get to this pub, this little hotel. He goes up and changes. He did at one point, I must tell you, coming to where I was hanging around in his suite, sort of bollock naked. Right. Sort of standing there. Did which, he, you know, but I didn't sort of think... You didn't think oh, much of I it. I thought a bit weird, a bit weird. <laughs> but the, the thing that I did find weird was that when we were driving up, and then including when I drove him back to London afterwards, he just talked the whole time about shagging women. The whole time. Ugh. And um, about his walks and how, you know, a little bit. Remember when Trump said, if you're famous, you can do anything? Yeah. A little bit that sort of vibe. And I remember going home and saying to Fiona, I think Jimmy Savile's gay, you know. Interesting. That's why. because he just talks about women all the time and women he's shagged and, you know, this woman and that woman. And you, th- you think. So I think there was an l- element of hiding in plain sight. Mm. Yeah. Um, but something very, very. Yeah, something quite strange about it, but it's it's hard to know how much you recalibrate your own mm. once you know memories certain of things. something. Once you know something, still Jimmy Savile in your car, do you still have the same car? Mm, no, <laughs> my God, no. imagine <laughs> that was a long. That time. would need a little that was spring like, clean. That was like more than thirty years ago. Gang, I don't know about you, but I am always trying to find ways to sprinkle my weekends with things that don't just revolve around drinking like going to the pub. I try and include one wholesome activity that I feel inspires me creatively in some way, be that watching a film or seeing an amazing art exhibition. Same here, babe. It's always good to take in some culture, which is why we're so pleased that our new sponsor is the Art Fund's National Art Pass, an amazing pass that allows you to go and see paid exhibitions at museums and at art galleries at a fantastic 50% discount, valid for major galleries from the Tate to the National Gallery and the V&A, some partnered venues are even free with the past, such as the Brighton Pavilion, my fave, Cardiff Castle and Ham House. I love it so much that my boyfriend and I have actually bought several passes for friends as gifts. They're perfect for birthdays. And for those interested in getting one of these amazing culture passes, excitingly, we have a fabulous extra discount for you. Yes, we do. Until the 30th of June, you can try a three-month trial National Art Pass for just £15. And our gorgeous listeners can also add a free plus one to their trial membership with promo code Straight Up. So it really is such a perfect way to do a wholesome date day with a friend or your significant other. Els, please tell me, what have you used your card for recently? I loved After Impressionism at the National Gallery, which is on until mid-August because I just love Suzanne and Van Gogh. I went with a friend on a sunny Sunday morning, then we had lunch together in St. James's Park and it was such a cute day. What about you, hon? So cute, so wholesome. I love it. I am so, so excited to see Yaya Kasuba at the Tate Modern. You know, the gorgeous infinity light rooms that you've probably seen all over Instagram? Yes, stunning. And if the fact that these exhibitions are half price with the Art Pass wasn't enough to convince you, then warm your heart in knowing Art Fund is the national fundraising charity for art. And so buying an Art Pass helps Art Fund support museums, galleries and historic places across the UK. Head to artfund.org slash national dash art dash pass to grab your three month trial national art pass for just £15. And do not forget to add your free plus one to your trial membership with the promo code straight up. That's all in caps, all one word straight up. Thank you so much to Art Fund. When you look back on your like journalism career, is there any moments in particular where you felt like ethically compromised because of like editorial sort of decisions or stories you might have wanted to write or worded that badly? But you know what I mean. No, the only t- the only time I felt really bad about doing something as a journalist was actually 
a story about a woman who'd won um, the football pools and she ticked the no publicity box, okay? And she won and she ran a pub down in this village and it turned out that the day when somebody in the village knew what her, her, she always did the same numbers on her pools coupon. She wasn't there to fill it in and he filled it in for her and she won, okay? And the talk in the village was that, I think he was a postman, uh, might be, or he might be the guy who collected the pools coupons. And, but the talk in the village that we heard through somebody or other was that she wasn't giving him a cut, as it were. Um, so I was sent down there to kind of doorstep her and try and talk to her about it. It was obvious she just did not want to talk mm. about it. She just had no interest in it whatsoever. But it was one of those things where you, there were no mobile phones then. You had to go out to a phone box, phone the news desk, say, look, she just, she literally won't open her mouth. She won't do it. Well, you just got to keep at it. You just got to keep going at it. You know, go in the pub, talk to everybody else, da, da, da. And I remember thinking, you know, she'd become well-known, i.e. she'd become, yeah. you know, newsworthy yeah, for yeah. the day, right? But she had ticked the no publicity box, right? Yes. And, <laughs> and I remember feeling really quite bad about that. Um, I can't remember what we wrote about it, but it was, you know, angry neighbours kind oh, of story. God. It was one of those awful, awful things. Did you come up through the news desk? So did you do, like, death knocks? Well, we did... When we were trainees, when Fiona and I were trainees down in the West Country, it was during it was p- partly coincided with the Falklands War, so there was a little bit of you know relatives of people who'd been killed and things like that. Um, I've always been amazed though how this is why I think being a journalist is you know such a privilege in many ways. Most people do don't mind talking to you. Yeah, it's mm. true. I've always found that really surprising. Yeah, like. Pre being a journalist, I assumed that sources were paid or like not coerced in a horrible way, but like strong armed often into speaking. And since becoming a journalist, I'm like, God, people love like just talking for free and just contributing and yeah. just having something to say. I think, I think also, so true. There's the, you know, I, I learned a lot working on local papers because you kind of have to learn how to talk to people to make them want to talk to you. Um, and I think that's a really important human skill. Um, in fact, in the book, which you clearly don't want to talk about, there's a whole there's a whole section about the importance of learning how to speak in public. Yeah, which and journalism is part of that because how you the impression that you make when you talk about knocking on a door, the impression that you make when the person opens that door, particularly if they're in a situation where mm. they don't want to talk to you. Oh, I'll tell you one story. Which do you remember, Koo Stark? No. no. Do neither of you know who Koo Stark is? Oh, God. Not. Is that an age thing? Or, or like is that it's totally an age being thing. Okay, no, it's God. totally an age <laughs> thing. Koo Stark, again, probably back in the 80s. I mean, there was a period when she was probably the most written about person in the country. She was going out with Prince Andrew. Oh. And I was a, yes, I was a freelance yes. at the time, like you. And I was doing, to get decent money, I was doing literally 12-hour shift for the Daily Mirror and 12-hour shift for the Daily Star non-stop on her doorstep oh my god yeah. oh my god now to, basically that meant some of the time going off to sleep and yeah. making sure you had a mate there who was looking yeah. out for you but i was really really impressed by kustak i mean look her up it's like there's you'll get so much coverage you'll be amazed you haven't heard of it because she's sort of part of journalistic folklore kustak what was the place i think it was called abingdon villas and there was a pub there. It was a classic, brilliant doorstep because there was a pub from which we could see the front door. And so you just, you know, the photographers, of course, yeah. had to stay there. But the reporters, we could just... And then 
as soon as the car arrived, would leg it and say, hey, cool, what you got to say? Hey, cool, cool, cool. And then and, and she was coming in and out. What really impressed me, though, she never, ever, ever said a word. Oh. And I love that. I really Not like even that. to when they don't swear at you. Yeah. Not a thing. And you know what? I, I think that was buried away in my subconscious because when in later life I became, as it were, the subject of being doorstepped, when particularly during the, 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 Iraq, the aftermath of the Iraq war, we had just up the road here, we had the media outside our house like day and night. Mm. And I just decided I'm never going to say a word. I'm going to do my job and I speak there, I do the briefings and all the stuff I was doing, but I'm never going to say a word. And I didn't. I think that was channeling Coos Dark. Did you feel less resentful about being doorstopped yourself because you like knew the kind of like cognitive, I guess, dissonance behind it, which is that people just have a job to do, they're getting paid... You're not being stalked. Yeah, probably, probably. I, I, I sort of feel that it's... I think, I, I think the other thing it gave me was that I didn't worry about it too much because I'd been in that position so often myself where a lot of the time, frankly, you didn't really care. You, you weren't that bothered if somebody mm. spoke. You'd prefer they did, but you weren't that bothered as long as you were kind of, you know, doing your job. Um, well, you said before you've got quite thick skin, thicker skin than Tony Blair, I think you said once. What? I think I probably have got thicker skin than Tony Blair, yeah. Um, I'll tell you the one time when I got really angry. Did I get angry? I got... Yeah, I think I did get quite angry. Was, but I didn't show it because I knew that that was what they were trying to do. was when that time, that period when we had them outside the house the whole time. And it was a weekend and my daughter, Grace, so this would be 2003. So she'd have been nine, something like that. And I was supposed to be taking her out somewhere at the weekend and we're walking down the road and these camera crews are following us backwards down the road. And I said, listen, what the fuck are you doing? You're not meant to, you know, she's a kid. Mm. And, the, and one of the cameras says, it's okay, we're only filming you from there upwards. I said, well, how the hell is she supposed to know that? <laughs> right, you know, and that, that sort of... And then another time when it wasn't the media, there was another time when we had these anti-war protesters outside the house who were giving my daughter and her friends coming back from school loads of leaflets about me. Oh, God. Uh, and that sort of stuff pisses you yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you go, no, for the rest of it, I think you just gotta. Nah, it doesn't really. It doesn't bother me. So, what's the media attention now that you are a top podcaster and you're about to release? You've released your book, but what can I do? But mostly, I suppose this newfound fame is coming from the rest of politics. It's a very different kind of celebrity. And we actually just said off air, just to toot your horn a little bit more, at that you guys sold out the London Palladium quicker than the Foo Fighters yeah. recently. Oh, I thought it was the Palladium, but maybe it was. However, there. you beat the Foo Fighters. Um, 5,000 tickets in about 15 minutes I know, or something. I it's pretty mad. I don't... You're a rock star. Uh, I don't feel it. I don't feel it's different other than... I'll tell you what I feel is different is... So, like, for example, if Fiona and I are walking the dog around the heath, mm. I've always had people stop and talk to me for a long time. Like in a, a nice, usually nice way. Yeah, not always, but usually perfectly nice. Usually just, you know, they spot you out there and, and, you know, sometimes very quite aggressive and hostile, but in the main pretty nice. It's gone to a different level with people literally saying the whole time, love you podcast. Like, I mean, literally like everywhere. It's just bonkers. So it's gone from mostly nice, but sometimes hostile to like 100% nice. Fans. It's not 100%. It's not 100%. I still get some hostile. Are they usually men? That's a good question. Yeah, yeah I think probably question. they are. Yeah. I don't know, because men are all, they're more kind of, I, this is very generalizing, but they're no, invested in the war stuff. You know, they're more interested no, it's not, in but I think, I'll tell you what I would say is, I think it's more, um, less so in the last couple of years, but it's more Corbynistas. And the hard right. 
right. I'd say. So it's the extremes of politics, really. Who tend to be Who tend men. to be. Whereas, <laughs> I, I, you know, people won't... Because people, so many people don't want to hear a good word about Tony Blair, mm. you'd be amazed how many people actually say, God, I wish you guys were back. Yeah. They say that a lot. And that, you know, that was the last time we had a decent government and Tony Blair was the last decent prime minister we had. We get a lot of that. I mean, that's generally the argument, isn't it? I've understood that view that a more centrist Labour politics is ultimately going to be more like crowd-pleasing and therefore people will vote for it and that's why we're in the situation we're in. I was one of those annoying young people, perhaps in your view, that did join the Labour Party and voted for Jeremy Corbyn. Well, I don't mind um, that. I, listen, as long as you... This, this actually speaks to the theme of the it, book. It really doesn't. But what well, can exactly. I do? I do think, I, and I say in it, that I'd be happy if somebody who's basically a Tory reads that book and thinks, oh, there's stuff I can use here. Mm. To pursue, but I just want people to get more engaged in politics because yeah, politics stop. is just such a mess. Yeah. Um, what is the first thing we for someone who's never done, never written to an MP, never done anything? What can? What is the most practical first step? They can just read the book, but as a little taster, it depends. It depends what you. I, I think the, mo the, the most important first step is to tell yourself that you care. Yes. And to care, and then to understand that you do have agency. The question is whether you, whether you decide to use it. So I think the first step would depend upon how, what your views were, what your values were, and how much time you had to give commitment. And do you think that that energy needs to be channeled into mainstream politics? So just to give you like an example argument, I'm definitely on the same kind of um, viewpoint as your daughter, which is that like we should just like get the Tories out and we want a Labour government like outside of anything else that's kind of a good goal yeah. but I know other young people maybe a couple of years younger than me as well who also feel you know extremely like disillusioned disengaged perhaps have actually never even been that engaged and they're far more likely to channel their frustration with like the status quo and whatever else into something like going to extinction rebellion meetings yeah well I, I think I, I get that completely and uh, all I say that for them I think the, the what I say to all to anybody is that if there's, a, if there's a chance to vote on anything, I think you should take it. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Even if you're going to abs... Like, Even if you're going to say none of the above, yeah, yeah. cross it off. That's I, what my brother I, I does. Actually would, I actually would, would prefer if we had compulsory voting, because I think it would make people think about it more. But I think that protest is fine. I think protest is really important, and it's one of the reasons why this government's trying to curb it. Mm. But at the same time, if you really want change, at some point you do have to be in direct engagement with the political process. And what I say to every young person is, oh, there's no point. What's the point? You know, they only care about the old people anyway. One of the reasons for that is because they know that old people vote. Yeah. So by not voting, you're actually signaling to the politicians that you don't really care. And if you don't care, they're thinking, well, come election time, I'll focus more on the old people. So I'd say get engaged, get involved. And I, I don't think, look, Extinction Rebellion and those kind of big protest organisations, protest has always had a, a campaign, he's always had a big role in our politics. So I certainly wouldn't dissuade people from doing that. But what, what I, I would dissuade them from doing is thinking that the, the, what you might call the standard political process has nothing to do with them. Mm. It's got everything to do with them. And, they, and what they campaign on is not going to work, not going to work out the way they want it to, unless at some point they persuade the political process as well. What do you think about age limits with voting? I, on the top half, as in cut off from people who are too old or people that are too young? I think, well, I, I would lower the voting age to 16. Um, possibly even lower, but definitely 16. One of the best things about the Scottish independence referendum was the, it energised the debate. Mm. Now, there, a lot of them voted in a way that I'd rather they hadn't. The majority voted mm. to, for Scottish independence. 
But I thought it really helped the sense of energy in the debate, and I think, I think we need that here. I think we need that across the UK. Um, I think that's a tough one about because of Brexit. The top end. Well, yeah. I did say I did say I did vote, and then you're dying off. next year. I mean, well, I, this is really difficult, right? But and it's a very hard argument to win. But I think there was a case, actually, for saying. Unlike a general election, when you're deciding something for the next four or five years, and then if you don't like it, you can kick them out. With Brexit, you knew that you were potentially deciding something that was going to be a fundamental change for generations. I think there could have been some sort of waiting going on. That like, you know, 18 to, <laughs> 18 yeah. to 30, you have three votes. Yeah. 30 to 60, you have two votes. Above 60, you have one vote. I actually kind of agree with yeah, that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That would have... Made a lot more sense. It would, and but I don't think that the, you see. I think the problem with the whole business of the Brexit and the referendum was that I don't think David Cameron ever thought he was going to lose. Mm. No, he didn't. A cocky. Well, and also just pumped. he was convinced about the argument and. Right, Hans, a quick break while we have a very honest discussion about money. Who listening has a credit card? Considering that we're all majority women here and the data shows that women tend to use credit cards less than their male counterparts, we're going to assume that it quite frankly isn't many of you, and we're here to tell you why that needs to change ASAP. Yes, it's time we were honest about the massive gender gap when it comes to confidence around money. I'm literally 30 years old. I've never had a credit card until now, which is bonkers, because I was just so intimidated about the idea of owing a bank money that I would somehow get myself stuck in debt or that I wasn't successful enough to need one. So I actually got one when I was about 27 in the run-up to buying my first flat. I wanted to build my credit rating so that I was in a really good position mortgage-wise. And I have to say, it's been a total game-changer in so many ways that I hadn't expected. Also, you really don't need to be earning a six-figure salary to use one. And they can be extremely helpful, say, in circumstances like you might want to look into a personal loan or you want to book flights without the stress of thinking something might go wrong. Absolutely. So my first credit card is Yonder, the new lifestyle credit card and Straight Up's very exciting new sponsor. You may remember in our last few episodes, we talked about how hooked we were on Yonder's incredible perks from very good value travel insurance to using your points to redeem at some of London's coolest restaurants and bars. Let me tell you guys, this is the ultimate credit card for foodies. It really is the absolute best. You'll never miss a payment and so you won't get charged any interest with Yonder because they can easily set up auto pay monthly, fortnightly or even weekly. Plus, credit cards generally are a safe way to spend your money. When you spend on a credit card, your money sits safely in your bank account until you need to pay your bills, which means that if there's fraud on your card, your money's still safe. You also get purchase protection because of Section 75, which is a piece of regulation that means your purchases over £100 are protected if they break or they're not delivered as expected. So making these purchases on a credit card means that you have more protection if something goes wrong. Exactly. So guys, go check out Yonder. My boyfriend has already got a massive £300 off dinners out at our fave London restaurants just from a few months of building up his points via Yonder. I mean, how incredible is that? Literally the dream. Head to yondercard.com to download the app and try Yonder for free for your first six months. Plus get points to spend at Wonder of Yonder's treat experiences. This month you can get up to £7 off at over 100 pubs across London to treat yourself to a lovely pint or whatever drink it is that you love. Approval is subject to eligibility and you need to be over 18 and a UK resident to apply. A membership fee and TNCs apply. Borrow responsibly. The representative rate is 64% APR variable. Thanks so much to Yonder. So talking of celebrities again, have you ever been starstruck by anyone? The first time I met, actually, it's really weird. They both begin with M and end in A. Is that, are you going to make us oh, guess? A cryptic clue. Mandela. Yeah. And Maradona. Oh. And actually another M, Muhammad Ali. Oh, got a thing yeah. for the M. And a little yeah. bit of Diana. Actually, Diana. The icons. Diana is another one that made me rethink my, my journalistic self when I first oh. met her. Because when I was on the mirror, I used to write really vile stuff about her. 
Interesting. Because they wanted you to, or because you had a bee in your bonnet about her generally? Because I was sort of, a, uh, I was like a, I used to sit, there was a guy called, in the miracle, James Whitaker, who was the royal correspondent, he used to sit just in front of me. And he used to come, and he loved the Queen, and he loved Philip, and he loved Charles. He used to dig up all sorts of dirt on all of them, but he was such a sort of out-and-out monarchist. And I yeah. was like, you know, for God's sake. And of course, I knew as well, I'd be grafting away at trying to get some really heavy-duty political story. And then all James had to do was get, you know, a couple of words from somebody close to Diana saying something about somebody close to Charles, and he's got the front page again, you know. And so I used to sort of, you know, write my column about what a completely this ridiculous obsession we have with the royal family and Diana and how exploitative she was and using the journalists and all this sort of stuff. So anyway, the very first time I met her, which was in a very strange setting where Tony Blair had gone for dinner with her, Tony and Sheree had gone for dinner with her, and this was in the run-up to the 97 election, mm. and... I'm very proud of this, and Tony was Tony's never really forgiven me for it. Her very <laughs> her very first words were, "What's Alistair Campbell really like?" <gasps> oh! And then she said, "I'd love to meet him." <gasps> Do you think she fancied you a bit? I'm just saying. She said, "I'd love to meet him." <laughs> that is that's quite a claim to fame. So that is. then she came out. Into, I, I then had to go and pick Tony up because we were going to a local election count at the Labour Party headquarters. Rang the bell, said, "Can you tell Mr. Blair his car's here? We need to go." Five minutes later, tap on the window. She's there. What was her first, your first interaction? Did you feel a bit sheepish? I, I mean, it's embarrassing. I, 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 I did think, and I remember when I published my diaries, Fiona, my partner, said, I really think you should take that out. <laughs> and I said, no. She's like, it's not a good look. <laughs> because I did, I, 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 saw, I was waxing too lyrical. Is she your, would you say, your biggest celeb crush? I used to write, I used to send a birthday card to Diana Ross every March the 26th. <laughs> I stopped when I was about 52. Is that, is that as her a fan? Or as a, a fan. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you'd um, still... I mean, her performances haven't been that good recently. So no. you've maybe... I'll tell you what I did have a massive crush on when I was growing up with Lynn Paul of the New Seekers. Oh, I don't know who I that is. I don't know who that is. And I've, I've actually come to get... To, got to know her a bit since. Um, so, yeah, Diana was... Diana was... D- different league of, of crushology. Who was Fiona's crush? Was it... Were they in politics? It was me. Well, other than you. Oh, other I don't know. Celebrity crush. God's uh, sake. Who does she talk about in a sort of... I uh, don't know, really. That's a good question. You have to ask. I can't yeah, believe you haven't had that conversation. Uh, who's she going on about recently? She was going on about somebody recently. I can't remember. Oh, what's his name in succession? Oh, Brian Cox. No. Oh, no. <laughs> um, although she does like she does like Brian. In fact, here's a good celebrity story. We're having dinner with Brian on Thursday. Are you? Because you first spoke to him for your podcast with your daughter. I did. Which was great. Yeah. Where are you going for dinner? I'm not telling you. you might turn Is up. it in London? <laughs> Don't worry. This will be out two weeks after you've gone for Imagine dinner. Imagine if I turned so up. We won't, yeah, you no. might turn up on Thursday. No, we might. <laughs> yeah. Doorstep you at dinner. No, don't worry. It would be quite funny. Yeah. Is, well, but not, it's not far from here. Okay. Yeah. Oh, he's a North Londoner as well. Yeah, he lives in he lives in uh, near Regent's Park. Well, there we go. Yeah. You look so happy at the thought of seeing Brian Cox. I like Brian Cox. He, he's and and the whole. We saw the finale of Succession last night. <gasps> don't give me any spoilers. I've only watched yet. half an hour of it. Yeah, it's don't. Just, it's just incredible. Well, so far, it's not matching up to the penultimate episode. Okay. Let me tell you another interesting story. You know Jesse Armstrong? Yes. He came up to me. Brian invited us to the premiere of Succession oh. way back. Yeah. 
Is this uh, like a kind of Scottish affinity as well that you and Brian had originally? Uh, but no, it's a Labour. Funny enough, it's a Labour Party affinity. But right. of course, he's now SNP. Yes. Because he used to do stuff with us, and then he did. He used to do broadcasts and stuff like that. And then he also worked with us on the People's Vote campaign, trying to get a second referendum on the Brexit stuff. Um, anyway, so we go to this thing, and this guy comes up to me and says, "You don't remember me, do you?" And I said, "No." He says, um, "I'm Jesse Armstrong." I said, what, we met? He says, yeah, I don't remember. I used to be Doug Henderson's special advisor. And Doug Henderson was like a Labour MP who became a Europe minister. I think that was as high as he got. Oh, uh, my God. Jesse Armstrong. Had a he said, political career. He said, you know, basically, I was working for you. And uh, I said, well, I think you made the right career choice. <laughs> yeah. You've done pretty well for yourself. Did you feel a bit... Did you feel starstruck then? I mean, he's written one of the best TV shows of the no, last 10 years. No, I didn't years. really do starstruck. Um... Who else? The Mar- Maradona was, was like, I oh, just, I mean, that guy's just, you know, the best. And I played with him in this charity match, so it was <gasps> just like, you know, it was too good. Well, talking of celebrities who cross over into politics, yeah. what are your thoughts, maybe from a comms perspective, of celebrities getting involved with the politics? Because I guess they can make more of an impact because they know how to talk to people. But then, not there were, not all of them, but then there's some survey, I think there was a YouGov survey that said in 2018 that actually it makes no difference to people voting in Britain whether a celebrity has endorsed someone and in fact often mm. it's negative yeah it can be I, I think it's just part of the mix I don't think it's a big deal I mean look in the book that you don't want to talk about there's a whole chapter dedicated to Vladimir Zelensky's amazing communication skills now, he's a celebrity yes he's yeah. that, he, was a, he, he pushed was a, it a bit too far though didn't he with the Vogue the Vogue spread oh did he did oh, he I, his wife did a Vogue shoot in like parts of dilapidated Ukraine well I mean the point I make about him though is he's brilliant at saying the same things in different settings which is part of what modern political communication is all about Um, so let's just think of some so Marcus Rashford yes footballer yes picks up a campaign that's been running for a bit really gives it energy really gives it legs and I'd say that's engaging in politics. Yeah. Gary Neville, another football name. I think he's really developed a new kind of edge to his profile, which is about politics. Your podcast is produced by his company, is it not? No, that's Gary Lineker. Oh, got them wrong. Yeah. Oh, God. I always get those two Gary's. I do. Are you not football people? No. no. How, can you, how can you talk about celebrity if you don't know about football? Well, well we've interviewed... They're the biggest celebrities. Hey, I interviewed yes. Pele. I played with Pele. God, are we ever going to get one on you? Are we ever going to win? Actually. Can I you, who, who have you met that maybe I don't Hector know? Hector Bellerin was a very inane interview. Oh, GQ liked him I've quite met. a lot, didn't yes. I've actually met him at that um, dinner. And he, uh, the, the GQ thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. And he, am I not right that he does amazing stuff for like kids and charities? Probably. And gives his money away and stuff like that. He's very into grooming. I was told by his PR that I could only ask him about the contents of his wash bag, which I obviously disregarded. I don't have a wash bag. Well, so this is another fun story that we have, is that my editor, when your editor at GQ, once decided to just send you loads of male grooming products just because it would annoy Alistair. But then I had to then get another courier to bring it back. Oh, you didn't even receive them? No, you Uh, said, Gus, you said, I don't want these, take these away. (laughs) Gosh, you could have saved them <coughs> for your son. No, but Jonathan was absolutely determined to get me to use product, as he called it. And it, just, it was never going to happen. I don't even use shampoo. Gosh. No. Well, I must say for the listeners who care, your hair looks perfectly clean. It's lovely you. and clean. Thank you. Well, yeah. I've just had it cut, but, um, but, but I use soap. Um, mm-hmm. I don't use shaving foam. I just use a, 
Sort of is this razor. an ideological conviction? Or it's just... partly a consumer, anti-consumerist thing. Okay, I think right. a lot of it's bullshit. Yeah. I think the whole male grooming yeah. thing is a bit bullshit. Um, Does Fiona wish she wore a bit of perfume every now and then? I don't think so. She's never, compl <laughs> she's never complained about this. Well, she might have complained sometimes, but not much. Um, so did you have to put that ideological she has standpoint? A lot of, she has a lot of, of products. stuff. She may well have liked your men's products. I liked she myself a, a men's grooming and product. I sometimes, I'm, I'm pleased to say, I, I, I do sometimes, when stuff arrives like that, I don't say to my sons, do you want this? And they sort of look at it and not really know. No, interested. Oh, so you've imparted... No, no, they, they, they probably care a bit more than I do, but no, I find the whole thing absolute nonsense. Just, I don't understand the whole watch thing. Oh, I've got a, yeah. yeah. Talking of your kids, we are fans of Grace's comedy. Yeah. And I, having, I, considering I don't even let my own parents read my articles or listen to this podcast, because <laughs> we're not even particularly wild on it, but there are some things I don't want them to hear. My stepdad will be listening. Yes. Yeah, Andy. Um, I was shocked and thrilled by the fact that Grace was just able to just talk about her sex life and I assume you're in some of these audiences or are you banned from the no, shows? No, she wants us there. And how She gets really stressed if we're not there sometimes. Oh, that's so cute. Like, how do you have that amazing relationship where she doesn't care that you hear stuff like that? Is it because it's come, does it come from your parents? Are you always like cool, open dad? Yeah. No, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know where it comes from really. I think Fiona finds it maybe harder than I do. I... Um, I when I how to explain this? See, when I was her age, a bit younger, I wrote for soft porn magazines. Oh, <laughs> under my own name. Oh, I don't right. think I knew this. Yeah, so That's there you are. Not on your Wikipedia page. What magazines? I think it probably is. Yeah, I think it might be <laughs> forum. Oh, and so like little erotic stories. Yeah, yeah, but quite sort of full on. <laughs> okay. And I remember there was a woman when I first sold them to forum. I wrote a whole batch of them when I was on my year abroad in Nice, I was a student. And um, I remember, had a few published, and then there was a woman called Emma Forbes, who was the assistant editor at Forum. And she said, look, I, I was living in Nice at the time. She said, when you're, in London, when you're in London, just pop in. And so I went to see her, and she said, look, do you really want these, your own name on these? Because you never know what you're going to be in the future. And they're quite, you know, I said, well, yeah, I'm really proud of them. You know, you know. So I guess Grace has got that same sort of, Pride of ownership. That makes a lot of sense now. Yes, yeah. it does. And my parents were pretty embarrassed and shocked by the whole thing. Oh, so they knew about the stories once they were published. Yeah, yeah. Your dad was a vet. My dad was a vet. So, you, you know, knew how bodies worked and mm. all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I was actually very intrigued by... You said he once had a very serious accident with mm. a pig. And I thought, I'm not going to bring that up in case it was so serious it's insensitive. But I actually heard you mention that on your James O'Brien interview yes. as well. Did I? Yes, yes. but you yes. didn't say... Only in passing. But then I thought that I'd misheard and you'd said, pick... No, Not pig. pig. But you didn't say sow. what it was. Is it was it... a sow. Okay. Female pig that attacked him when he was injecting, it, vaccinating its piglets. Oh. And so it smashed him <gasps> up against the wall and sort of battered him. Oh, my God. Mm. I didn't realise sows could be so violent. Yeah, 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 don't mess with their kids. It was tethered up somewhere else, but it broke out <gasps> where it was. And your dad is okay. Well, they're, yeah, big. they're big. Yeah. They're quite violent, yeah. yeah. Was he so, okay? Uh, not really. He was in hospital for a long time, and, and, and then he sort of went back to being a practice vet, but he couldn't hack it, so he... he Probably he, had, like, PTSD from... No, it wasn't that, but he just couldn't do the 24-hour-a-day thing anymore, and so he, he packed it in, sold his practice, and became a Minister of Agriculture vet. Mm. And then he worked for the PDSA, People's Dispensary for Sick Animals. Um, so, yeah, that was a kind of defining moment, because that's when we moved from Yorkshire to Leicester. Went to the same school as Gary Lineker. Yeah. That's the one. Not Neville. 
Uh, As a journalist, did you judge James O'Brien for not asking a follow-up question about the pig? Because I did. No. Okay. No. no. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, though. <laughs> I mean, I hope James won't slag me off for this, but I could tell he hadn't read the book. Oh, really? Oh, you can always tell. I can tell you two haven't read well, it. We haven't read we the haven't book been sent we it. haven't been sent it. Why can you buy it? I didn't know it was out yet. It is quite out. Frankly. I, sorry, I'm do you, sorry, do you follow the papers? Do you, I do, do you, do you ever I, look at bestseller lists? I thought it was out this week. It's, it was out I'm on sorry. the 25th of May. I really genuinely want to read it and will read it, I promise. It's I was definitely... actually thinking you would bring us one. Well, I w- I, well, I'll tell you what, we'll walk back. I will go by water The only reason, no, no, we'll walk past by my house and I can give you them. Because the thing is that, I would have done this at home, but we've we've um, we've just we got builders in, and it's absolute chaos. Yes, we were excited to come to your house. Oh, well, you can come and, pick up and then bugger off. <laughs> well, based on the title, obviously, as we've said, it speaks to this like pervading sense, I guess, of hopelessness amongst young people. That's their number one question that they ask you: What can I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, are you overall an optimist or a pessimist about the future of humanity? Would you say? I blow hot and cold. Some days I'm very optimistic, and some days I'm can't get out of bed. Mm. Um, what makes me optimistic is actually the scale of it is so bad that I think that's what's making people wake up to it. Mm. Um, I did an interview yesterday for a podcast called Planet Critical, which is about the future of the planet. And it's with a young woman who actually was the, the, the daughter of somebody that Fiona and I trained with as a journalist. And she was like, I could tell she was thinking this age, this age group, they just don't get how bad it is. They don't get it. They think we can still sort of move at a pace that's... And I do get how bad it is, but I sort of feel... When I'm optimistic is when I, I think, you know what, I think most of the young generation does get how bad it is. I was in this... I did this event at Roehampton University the other day, 600 school kids, open air thing. They were just visiting the university for the day. And I did feel hopeful at the end of it. I thought, they've got it. They've, they've sort mm. of... They understand that we're going to need to change. And um, interesting as well, I'll tell you something really, I thought was really interesting. I asked, I asked them all if they any of them thought they might go into politics. And a few hands went up, right? But there was one bit where there was quite a gaggle of hands went up, like, you know, half a dozen in this. And I thought that's either an amazing teacher or there's one kid in there who's, like, really political and he's gathered them around. And I said, what's going on over there, then? <laughs> uh, what's, what's happening over there? And one of the kids said, don't know what it is, really. He says, but it might be because John Major went to our school. Oh, it's really interesting because I think that that's the big issue, right? Like I've never in my life, having gone to like London state schools, met anyone who's interested in going into politics, Um, which I think, even though, funnily enough, I went to the same, my sixth form was Tony Blair's kids secondary school, the oratory. No one at the oratory wanted to go into politics. And I think that that's like you say, just because you're not, I guess, modelled it. Whereas if you go to Eton, you're like, sure, I could be prime minister. Why not? Yeah. But how do we make that shift? And how do you actually engage like normal kids? Like, how are you going to get 13-year-olds to want to do that with their lives? I, I, I think the thing I found at not all school, I, I, do, I go into lots of schools, and the thing I found at that with that group and that I do see in a lot of schools is that when you, when you treat them with kind of respect and you actually genuinely want to hear what they think about things, they become interested. Mm. I did this thing years ago called, with Jamie Oliver called Jamie's Dream School. It was a mm. TV thing where we got these kids who'd been through the school system. They're not, they didn't have a single O-level between them, not one. And we had to try and energise them and get them interested in stuff. Now, some of them, it was impossible. But some of them, I remember I, I was teaching them about politics and I, the, I think it was the first or second lesson. I just showed them some clips from some amazing speeches down the years. And by the end of it, they were, they were like mesmerised. And then when you talk to them, about, you know, 
how Bill Clinton crafted a speech, how Barack Obama used his voice, mm. how some people use their hands, how, how people use very, very short sentences in the middle of long sentences, how people use the Bible, how people use Shakespeare. And they were very, they were energised by it. And, and two or three of them, I don't know whether they still are, but they, they got stuck into local politics. So I think if you give people the understanding, I was talking to a guy today, a journalist for, for the Times Educational Supplement, and we were talking about oracy, which is this idea that you've got literacy, write, reading and writing, numeracy, basic maths, and oracy is about communication and speaking. And, you know, I really hope that the Labour Party take that up as, and put it in the curriculum, you know, because you've got to teach kids how to speak and how to communicate. Well, speaking of speeches, um, I have a touching story about you from my friend Cleo, who Cleo. said, Cleo, 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 she went through a very, very bad period of mental health was sectioned in fact she's allowed me to say this and she said what really helped her get through the days when she was in hospital was watching your speeches and she does work for civil service and she is interested in into politics and she said there was something about the way you gave speeches that just gave her confidence to express herself and oh, also so yeah and she also asked me to ask you to, <laughs> to read her dms ah on, <laughs> what, on instagram, on instagram. I mean, how many, can you, I, I will. But you must now, because it's on there. Okay, but can I just say that, could she maybe email me on my <laughs> website? Yes. Pop I them in an email. Pop them in an email. Yeah. yeah. I think, to be fair, she was in a, she was sectioned at that point. Normally, normally, if I see, I've got to be honest, I don't read them all. If I do see somebody on there who's talking about mental health, I will always reply. Oh. So I suspect I missed it. Well, she'll be very be, happy to I'd know be, that. I'd be going through a phase when I just wasn't looking. Some days I get... Because you think now, we're too connected. Mm. You know, I'm, I, people can get you on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, on email. You know, it's just it's too much sometimes. Do you have a super fan that you see at all the events that you recognise? Uh, yeah, I think there's quite a few. There's quite a few. I did have a, I did have a, a very, very well-known stalker, which has been public. Uh, Nicola Padgett, who was an actress uh, in Upstairs, Downstairs. Oh. And it was, that was a really interesting experience, actually. I, d she, I didn't, I wasn't remotely fearful. And Do you think that's because of the gender power dynamic? No, I think it's because she, she wrote these incredible letters to me all the time, as though we were a, a couple. Oh. Um, and... What was amazing was her insight into stuff that I was involved in was incredible about politics. It's actually quite useful letters. Not useful, but <laughs> I remember Sue Jackson, who, who, who was one of the team working in, in our office, this was when, when we were in opposition, she was really offended by the whole thing because she thought it was, she was worried that it would become public, and eventually it did, because she wrote a book. She didn't name me in the book, but it came out that it was me. And she wrote this book called Diamonds Behind the Eye, Dim Diamonds Behind Her Eyes or something. And she called me the stranger throughout the whole book. Mm. But the only time I got a little bit worried was when we were in Scotland for a, t a short trip, so like two, three days, and I got a letter from her which was postmarked Glasgow. That was the only time I thought this is going a bit Oh, God. But I, but I actually, when she died, I, I, and I, I was really touched actually because I... When she died, I just put out a statement on social, a couple of lines on social media, and um, her daughter actually got in touch and said that, you know, they'd often thought about getting in touch before um, because they knew... She, she actually had... 
I mean, she sent pictures of this when her, she had a husband and kids and everything. And she, she, when her husband went out, there were times when she was literally turning the house and she had all these photographs of me, just which she suddenly would put up all around the house. But she was convinced that we were a couple. That is, yeah, I, we do, when we speak to people on here, they often have a fan who is deluded into thinking they are actually together and are quite confused that they're not replying. But then you see the story of yeah. um, Abba. Yeah. The, the Abba stalker who they ended up together. Yeah. That's true. So Did you ever involve the police? Or was it like... No, no. No, I didn't. Okay. I'll tell you a really... Oh, my God. I don't know if I can even tell Go you on. the story. Come on. Do you know who Ming Campbell is? If you say no, I'm not going to tell you the story. <laughs> Are you related? No. <laughs> Ming Campbell. He was the... Le- we've already mentioned... I'll give you a clue. We've already mentioned one person oh, who had that the job. The Chancellor of the University of St Andrews. He might well be, because he just Googled it. Is he? No, hang on. <laughs> I don't think that's... No. I don't think that's else anyway, he was the leader of the Liberal Democrats for a while. <laughs> and he came through... One of the things that which Nicola used to do was write about sexual encounters that had never happened, as though they were real. And on one of these occasions, she, she cut off the front of a pair of knickers and put it on a postcard and put it inside an envelope and sent it to me. Everything was always sent to the House of Commons. Right. But her handwriting was quite spidery. And so one day I was sitting at my desk and Ming Campbell (laughs) walks in with this postcard with the knickers. I said, I think this might be you, old boy. So I had to to take him into my confidence about the... uh, Your fan mail. Do you, oh, um, well, you, I can imagine there's probably quite a lot of strange mail that turns up yeah. at the House of Commons. Would you say, based on your personal experience then, like, is sticking your head above the parapet worth it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a... There's a I, I, Julia Gillard, you, please tell me you know who Julia Gillard is. Yeah. Oh, my God, this is unbelievable. <laughs> I know, I'm actually getting quite mortified now. But no, I can't this pretend. This has been an education. It has. You don't know who Julia Gillard is? Oh no, no, Would I you don't. describe yourself as feminists? Yes. Yes, of course. Julia Gillard made one of the most famous feminist speeches ever. Right. As Prime oh, Minister of Australia, right. calling out the misogyny is of this, Australian politics. Is this politics. mansplaining? <laughs> anyway, Julia Gillard, you should look at her speech. It's one of the best speeches about I misogyny will. ever made. I will look at that. Okay. Look up Julia Gillard misogyny speech, and it will give you. The, I bet it. Do it now. I bet it's got yeah. about twenty million. Views. It probably does. Sometimes we do have slight strange holes in our knowledge. I How old say, are you? I'm thirty-one. I'm. I've just turned thirty. But my mother was French, and my dad was very. You know. Oh, of course, the French aren't interested in Australia, yeah. are they? No. They, they just. Sent, They're not interested in feminism. The rain, sent the Rainbow <laughs> Warrior over there. Anyway. Oh, yes. <laughs> returning to the book that you're begging a free copy of because yes. you want to give it a five-star review on Amazon, no doubt. Yes. Julie Gillard is quoting there because I said to her, if you were, this is about putting your head above the parapet, if a young woman came to you and said, look, I see the abuse that women get on social media, particularly the women of colour, I see the horrors of modern politics, can you really say hand on heart that I should do it? And she says that when she looks back on her career, she doesn't think about any of that stuff. Oh. She thinks about the stuff that you were able to get done. And I think that's right. So we just had a month ago, 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah. You know, that means more than all the shit you get. Yeah. Just to be sort of part of something like that. No amount of trolling could The trolling just never, ever bothers me. Those achievements. No. 
Did it ever bother you? Have you had to like build up a thick skin to that? I don't know. I think I've always had a thick skin. I think I, I think part, I think again, it helps having been a journalist because, and the thing about the, the I didn't really finish the story about Diana. She said when we, 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 after that, we had dinner a few times and, and, she said at one point, she said, why did you used to write those horrible things about me when you were in the mirror? And on today, she knew I'd done it on two papers. And I honestly said, I said, God, did you read that stuff? And she said, I read everything. And she remembered it. She remembered stuff I'd written that I hadn't remembered. And I thought, and that, and that, that had quite an impact on me. Because I think what it is, is that some people, Diana was definitely one of them, reach a, f a level of fame that the people covering it no longer see them as human beings mm. at all. They don't imagine they have any real humanity there. And until you see that yourself face to face, then you sort of... So she just became... I, I realised after that, she just became something that I could write about if I had nothing else to write about. Mm. And, of course, and this is the thing you see in the media culture now, that if you're really, really vile about somebody, the next time you have to be a bit more vile. Mm. Uh, if you're really, really, really... You know, you take a ridiculous paper like The Express and on Brexit. You know, I mean, how many times can they tell us that it's going incredibly well and it's going to deliver this booming Britain, right? You have to keep rank cranking up the rhetoric. So whether it's for good or for bad, the media culture forces you to be more and more over the top. And I think with, with somebody like Diana, uh, I mean, who else? I think Meghan does get it. I think Harry and Meghan both get treated the way they're treated because they've actually called out the media. Mm. And not many people do. I think I had that for quite a while, mm. uh, and I still call them out. And I, I don't, I, I don't think I get an, unfair, an unreasonable press from most places, but from some I still do. Doesn't bother me. I actually would hate it if the Daily Mail wrote a nice piece about me. If they really wanted to upset me, that's the way to do it. That would be quite extraordinary. Yeah, if they were to do the piece, sort of, you know, <laughs> we were wrong. He's absolutely amazing. Well, and they we might listen him. to this and troll no, you with one. No, I don't well, either. talking of publicity, you turned down I'm a Celeb. Yeah. What is the line for you in terms of, you know, using massive platforms to amplify your message? And uh, what did you think also from a comms perspective for Matt Hancock? I thought it was embarrassing. I thought it was totally embarrassing. So did not cement your decision to have not gone on it? Uh, yeah. I, I, I think the thing you've got to... For me... So I am doing Gogglebox. I love Gogglebox. With Grace. Well, that that's is different. Now, that's would cheap. I do that? Would I do that if I was on my own? Probably not. So that's more about Grace wanting to do it, and I think, well, it'll be fun, okay? But generally, a general rule for me is, if it's a choice between reputation and money, go for reputation every time. So, and the, the, where I've where it gets tricky is when they throw in the old charity thing. Uh. So I did do The Apprentice. Uh, I hated it. <laughs> but actually, they made a really good programme. Piers Morgan and I ended up... It was, a, it was a showdown between Piers and I at the end, and, and he got fired. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you said I that. I really enjoyed your Twitter um, little sparring with Piers Morgan about mental health campaigning. I think he won that one. It did was you? Why? Because he said... He said, I have a problem with celebrities using mental health to essentially like amplify their personal brands. Yeah. And then you say, Piers, if you're talking about me, and then you do a big spiel about what, you know, how it's for charity. And then he said, no, I was talking about celebrities. Ah, okay, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Um, Piers did actually come up with a very, very funny line. Uh, what was it he said? He said that my... He was asked for some reason to... 
I don't know why we did an interview. He was, he was asked to ask what, what, what my, my epitaph would be. Oh and my God, said, what a question. Said, Here lies Alistair Campbell again. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was quite funny. Do you, two like, do you chat amicably when you see each other? Yeah, we do. I was in court last week, though, sort of calling him out on the phone hacking stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't. Is I that don't. then awkward when you bump into each well, other? Well, it might be, but I think that, you know, having, having gone for the news of the world in the way that I did over the Millie mm. Dowler thing and also they, I got money out of them as well for the hacking thing. Yeah. Sponsored Burnley women's football team on the back of that. Did you? I did for Aww. a while. Yeah. Um, uh, I heard they got a new um, stadium recently. Who? Burnley. Burnley, didn't they? No. We've just oh. been promoted. You, you, oh God. No. Trying to keep up with the football. We're actually one of only two clubs in the country that have never moved ground. Right. What's the other one? I'll give you a million pounds if you can guess the other one. Oh, my God. Would you actually, though? Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> definitely. A million pounds. Uh, is it a football team I would have heard of? Are they in the Premier League? I'm not giving you any clues. We're talking about a million pounds All right. Here. How about... Oh, God. Fulham FC? No. No. Phew. Close. Preston yeah. North End. Ah. Um, well, so you did say you were raking it in with your podcast. I so that. You did. That was off air. No, I, I, I said I said that. I'm, I've, I've been surprised that podcasts can be lucrative. Podcasts can be. Lucrative. Oh yes, yeah. some yeah. podcasts I've can be. Yeah. Some. <laughs> so, so we always like to ask, um, what is the strangest rumor you've ever read about yourself? Oh, strangest rumor. No strange rumor. The, the 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 one time that I was able to screw the Daily Mail without any comeback whatsoever was when they wrote a piece saying that the formative experience of my childhood was that accident with the pig when my dad died because he was still living at the time. <gasps> oh. So that was cool, wasn't it? So we could get them. That was money for me. It was money for my dad. Apology. In fact, when we go back to pick up the book that you've been yeah. begging for, we'll have to yeah. go past Gos- Gospel Oak Primary School where all my kids went. You'll oh. be able to see the Paul Dacre Gates. Oh. Yeah, the gates were bought with that money. A little Alistair oh. Campbell tour. And they actually, yeah. and you named them the Paul Dacre Gates? The Paul Dacre Gates, in his honour. How nice. Yeah. Well, your kids must have been thrilled, slash not noticed. <laughs> I've even seen on uh, a greatest Instagram, you are now sometimes levelled with accusations of being a Nepo dad. I know. You've had I to know. ask her to, uh, to plug your back. I know. There was a time, there was a rumour going round about, um, I don't know if you ever made the press, but it was really, really, really tedious that I was having an affair with a... Tory MP's secretary. That was really annoying. Totally didn't even know her, but it's, this stuff does happen Double like that. Double whammy. Did your wife get cross, or did she know it was no, obviously not true? No, no. Were you more annoyed about the cheating thing or the Tory thing? <laughs> That's a very, that very a good, good question. question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but people do, people do say some pretty unpleasant stuff. Um, there's another one. Um, yeah, there's stuff like that, but I, I think... Uh, by and large, I'm, I don't think I've had that bad a deal. Do you ever regret getting cross on TV? Not that you get cross that often, but... He recently know, got cross right, on yes, Newsnight. That's Did in I? fact that what cross? I was referring to. Was that cross, was it? very cross. Um, but, but I it was don't blame you. A Brexit. Yes, yeah, so it was we'll a brilliant. I know, it was just like, funny enough, somebody at the Lido this morning, I hadn't seen her for ages, and she said, oh, I saw you on Newsnight, I loved it, I wish we need, we need more of that. Um, no, I was crossing myself for turning onto Victoria Derbyshire. Mm. But I do think I was right about the point I made about the BBC I think, and, and the rest of the media. They just get these people on. They're not held to account. You know, it's like Farage now yeah. comes out and says Brexit is a disaster. He's not even challenged on the fact that he was such a big part of making it happen. Yes, that's It's just like, well, they haven't done it like I would have done it. I mean, it, you know, it was never, ever going to be a success. 
No. It was never, ever going to do anything other than damage the country. And I actually said, I've just, funny enough, on the way, just before I came here, I did an interview where I, somebody said, what, um, what do you think you need to do? To, what, what do we need to do to repair British politics? And I said, change of government, definitely. But actually, unless the people who delivered Brexit on the terms that they did and the lies that they told, unless they are properly held accountable, I don't think we're going to repair politics. But that's never going to happen, right? So what are we going to well, do I about the right-wing like, press and the kind of chokehold that they have over what people believe? Well, I think that, I think that is changing. Because that's where my pessimism like, comes in and that's what makes me concerned, yeah? That I'm like, well-meaning people will read articles about, you know, why they should vote Conservative, why they should have voted Brexit, whatever else, and they just like believe it as gospel and that's my fear is that like we have such powerful people controlling like the narrative even mm. if we get a Labour government in as you mentioned in previous interview as well like you know people still will talk about mistakes that the Labour Party may or may not have made 20 years later mm. but things that happen in the Conservative Party are brushed under the carpet three mm. weeks later yeah. I can't see how that massive clear agenda is gonna I, change. I, no I, I get why you, why you say that but I mean I wouldn't underestimate what a change of government would do but it does then come down to people. So, like, you know, I do, any audience I talk to, I will say, you know, when you said, what's the first thing you can do? I actually do think stopping reading these newspapers would be a very good thing to do. Yeah. Um, I try so hard not to read the Daily Mail. I sometimes want to look at the sidebar of shame, but I don't on principle. I know, I'm not I do read the showbiz bit, but I have to for work. But I would also, yeah, yeah. Andre, but I also think so many young people don't read the newspaper. No, and also, but there's a danger in that as well. So I find that on so, social media that I do challenge myself to, to read stuff of people that I'm, I know I'm going to disagree with as well as stuff I'm going to agree with. But I, I wouldn't be too pessimistic about people's views. I, I, my sense of people going around the place, look, you've got some people who just, they don't give a shit, they never are going to give a shit, and that's fine, okay? That, that you've always had people like that. You've got people over here who are, like, you know, extreme right wing. Um, you're never going to persuade them that, that, you know, immigration isn't anything other than a problem. You're never going to persuade them that the Labour aren't, you know, a bunch of communists. And, and that, that, again, you can't, you can't persuade them. But I think in this middle bit, you've got a lot of people there who actually are more reasonable. And, and, but what they don't have is this sense of how they get their own agency. And that's what I'm trying to say to them. We've all got agency. The question is how we use it. Well... That's why we should all read. But what can I do to find out about agency? Ooh. And listen to the rest of politics. I to think that's probably get your sense of well, conversation listen, with opposing That's views. an interesting thing, though. I mean, you know, joking aside, when we did the when we filled the Albert Hall and whatever it was, we did some data on the demographics. Over a third were under thirty. That is oh, interesting. interesting. So, like, it's me, 65, 66. Rory, I think, is fifty. Both out of it in terms of the front line, but. But that yeah, does a lot of young people there. What about and like the, the 18 to 25 demographic? Or yeah. like, and did yeah. you have a view on their political leanings? I think they were left of centre. Mm. Um, there were some Tories there, not many. I think that there were... It was interesting, though. I think that they... they I, I, I love, if I ever get an audience, I like doing this show of hands about, you know... I don't ask them what they vote, but I get a sense of it. And my sense was that if, if I wanted an easy round of applause, you just have to say, Brexit's a disaster, Johnson's a liar, Sunak's not much better, and you're on strong ground. The minute you then start to say, and Labour's the perfect alternative, or anything close to that, oh, wait a minute. So I think it's that sense of, we're not sure about any of them. Now, and the, the other thing that's really interesting, virtually every audience we've done, we've always asked, who's going to be Prime Minister in two years? Mm. Sunak, Starmer, or somebody else? And it's between like 80% to 100% say Starmer. 
Okay. Really? Yeah. But then when you say, name the five missions or tell us what Labour's economic strategy is in a nutshell, they can't. And that, that's the bit Labour's got to fill in the next year. Mm, yeah. To go from just sort of limping over the line to actually winning quite big. Yeah. And I think definitely with younger people maybe who lean like on the left of the left, there's a distrust of Starmer just for things like I've heard many people say like, oh, well, he was head of the CPS, so he can't be trusted. He I didn't... think that's why he can be trusted because yeah. he's run a really difficult public service and did it well. Mm. But it's hard to get, it's hard to break through that stuff because there is so much cynicism. And of course, the Tories kind of fuel the cynicism. They're basically, they're not going to be able to fight on their record because it's terrible. They haven't got much of a plan for the future. So all they can do really is say that they're as bad as we are. Yeah, yeah, and they want, That's like, what they want infighting. to do. Eh? They want infighting. Yeah. What would you do if one of your three children voted Tory? Would that be a deal breaker? Do you mean like they'd stop being my children? <laughs> like, would you basically freeze them out? Would you have a massive fight? Well, it would be healthy political debate, though, wouldn't it? Your yeah, how healthy would it be? Uh, well, it hasn't happened. They've never even no, April fooled they're you. All, they're all uh, brainwashed. <laughs> <laughs> they're all uh, no. I think that look, they'll all vote Labour. Um, Callum, um, uh, so we've got Rory, the eldest one. He's pretty solid. I think he basically thinks Tony Blair should still be prime minister. Uh, Callum's probably to the left of me. Uh, Grace, you've seen. She's basically just get the Tories out. Get mm. Labour in. Um, no, I think I probably would find it quite difficult, to be honest. I would find it difficult. But I wouldn't kick them out. It's not impossible as they get older. What, they go Tory? Mm. I can't see it. Really? <laughs> I can't see it, no. I can't see it. Hopefully you'll I mean, be long you know, gone. There's the inheritance. Before then. Yeah. About, <laughs> you know, you can change the will to the last minute. <laughs> I, I, think, I think if they came back and said, you know, here's my new boyfriend, girlfriend... He's a leader writer on the Daily Telegraph or the Daily Mail. That could be a deal breaker. That could be a deal breaker. Yeah. Oh, God. I don't think I've told you many great celebrity stories, have I? Right, could you, you must yes, think let's, of let's an round excellent off. one to end on. Yeah. God. Have you Which ever, has been the most inane celebrity interview you've done? You must have done a few. You've done a few musicians, a few actors. No, not really. I did um, most inane. No, because I wouldn't do them. I, I never <laughs> did one at GQ that I didn't want to do. So I suppose Ollie Alexander was the one that I knew less least about, but actually I really enjoyed talking to and him. And you had mental health to talk about. Yeah, had a lot of that, that so that was good. Uh, Kevin Spacey was, that was pre his court problems, mm. but actually I thought he was really interesting. Did I do any musicians? Can't remember. Did Matt Hancock. You did Matt Hancock. Did do you remember Matt, Matt Hancock, who, uh, and that, the, 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 the bit that went viral after, later was because the thing is, he basically said, you know, that, Boris Johnson was just a total liar and should never be Prime Minister because he later became his Health Secretary. Oh, God, yeah. Did George Osborne for GQ? George Osborne, And then yeah. again recently? Yeah. That was a good, they were both very good interviews, actually. So uh, we have a question from mm. our previous guest. Ah, do you have to do that? Do I have to ask one for your next guest? You yes. do indeed. So okay. it's from Sophie Ellis-Baxter. Right. Do you like her? Yeah. Anyway, she said, what's your favourite party trick? And you can't say the bagpipes. No, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, singing ABBA songs in three languages. Oh, what are the three languages? French, German, English. Oh. Yeah, but you studied modern languages. That's a cop out. Why is it a cop out? Yeah. <laughs> I say that. Someone who also says the half French person danke, who did French at uni. Danke, <laughs> danke für die Musik, die Lieder, die ich singe. All right. Danke für die Freude, die sie bringen. Qui pourrait vivre sans ça? Je demande en 
Toute honnêteté. La vie, qu'est-ce qu'elle serait Sans chanter ni danser, qu'est-ce qu'on est Alors je dis thank you for the music. Lovely. Das du sie mir gegeben hast. How's that? Is this the first time you've sung on a podcast? We're on it. Possibly. Is this our scoop? Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. That's about it. I don't really like parties. What do you like doing when you're not working? I know you are a bit of a self-confessed workaholic, but what is a day off? And you can't say like? cycling and swimming either. Because <laughs> we know that already. Football. Playing or watching? Watching. Mm. Uh, cycling and swimming. And playing the bagpipes. How about any... Well, I suppose the bagpipes is a more unexpected And reading. Hobby. Okay, any trash? Any recent <laughs> guilty pleasures? Any erotic thrillers? No, I'm reading this at the moment. Oh, God, it's actually in German. Zeit zu leben und Zeit zu sterben. He's the guy, this is the guy who wrote, do you know, have you heard of All Quiet on the Western Front? Yes. Did you know it was a German book? Yes. Invest in nichts Neues. Yes. So he wrote that, and so I'm now reading his other stuff. Have you watched the new German, the first German production? Yes, I have. Thoughts? Very good. Thought it's quite similar to 1917. Yeah, maybe, but it was in German, therefore I enjoyed it a lot. Yes. I love listening to German. <laughs> I, well, my, half my family is German. Okay. They're from Zollingham. So you're French and German? Well, no, my dad's brother married into a German family. Okay, yeah. okay. So I have no English cousins. Right. Anyway, Alistair, what is your question for our next guest? Well, who is it? We don't know. We don't know yet, actually. It's, it's got to be a general question. It sort of depends, though, doesn't it? Well, yeah, unfortunately, you, we don't know. Um, <laughs> what about, what's your favourite party trick? You can't take, <laughs> the, same you can't take the same question. Um, Okay. And it can't be political. Well, it could be, because, to be fair, no one okay. else usually asks political okay, ones. But it so. can't be, we can't make them feel bad. No. And it can't be, what do you do? <laughs> oh, yeah. What do, what's the one um, thing you do okay, to be Okay, hold on. Um, it's quite a good question, though, actually. What's one thing that you do to be actively engaged in your local community? Yes. Or but we must let Alistair politics. choose his own question. Yes. What about... Um, <laughs> On a scale of one to ten, how hopeful are you that the planet will be here in a hundred years? Oh. Is that too heavy? No. Then with them crying. Is, won't is you that hear? too heavy? Well, no, because you did say that you are quite optimistic. I'm up and down. Yeah. I'm up and down, yeah. So, okay, no, we can, do, we can deal with that. Or, um, or does it have to be about, do you want to about celebrities? No, because not mine. No, no it can be anything. No. Yeah, I'll do. That'll do. Yeah. Alistair, thank you so much. I can't thank believe you, the people that I mentioned that you haven't heard of. Have you heard of Roger Bannister? It's no. definitely ringing a bell. Because <laughs> uh. I've got a very funny story about him. All right, who is that? I don't know who it is. You seriously don't know who Roger Bannister is? I definitely is. do know that name. You're now looking it up. Yes. And He's the first man to run a sub-four-minute mile. Right, well, it's certainly not the neurologist who comes up first. Well, I don't think many people would know that. Sorry, I just totally disagree with you. Oh, he was a neurologist and a middle-distance athlete. Yeah. I must say, I have not heard of him. Alistair's got Seriously? his head in his hands. You yeah. haven't heard of Roger Bannister? <laughs> no, no, and I, I wish that I had. My first I bet you've heard of Kim Kardashian. Yeah. Well, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, I think Roger Bannister had a greater contribution to the world than her. Well, you're well not, you might not be wrong. Probably right. <laughs> anyway, this yeah. story's not going to work really with you two, but it won't with some of your older listeners. Yeah, okay, we go do on. have some older ones, so go so on. So when I was at a do at the American Embassy and Roger Bannister was there and... Fiona, my Fiona, who knows very little about sport, and she joined us as I was talking to Roger Bannister. And I said to her, this is Roger Bannister. And I could see a sort of 
she's sort of thinking, I don't know who Roger Bannister is, a bit like you two. Okay, good. That makes you feel better. And yes. I said, you know the athlete. And she said, oh, what was your distance? Now, most of your listeners will find that very, very funny because he's, he's the most famous miler. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. Okay, yeah, that okay, yes. turns out. That story fell flat because you two didn't... Well, I sub four I, minute mile. Did you know who Maradona was? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But probably, Do you know who Harry Kane is? Yes, yes, of course. Anyone that's, like, operating in the current day, all I'm likely to know. Could you name the England 1966... Roger Bannister died in, 20, in five years, six could years you, ago. I know when he died. Yeah. <laughs> could, you, could you name the 1966 England World Cup winning team? Would you look at the time? No, but I would say that... Was Bobby Moore on there? Yes. Well done. Yeah. Any more? How um, many can you get? Bobby think... Moore, Bobby Charlton. Correct. That's probably where I, the only time I'd know. Unbelievable. But you know what... Um, this should be a good learning curve for you because you haven't listed any anecdotes with under 40s. So... Ollie Alexander. That wasn't really a story. You just uh, said you interviewed him. Okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> so I don't know enough young people, is that what you're telling yeah. me? Yeah. What does Grace think about your understanding of popular culture? I saw Jamila Jamil the other night. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah. And did you say hello? Yes. Very nice. So when you say you saw her... She was... Seeing Grace. Oh, they're oh. friends. Uh, so, and Jamila Jamil. We love Jamila Jamil. Yeah, we lo- I love Jamila Jamil. Yeah. And I was backing Jamila Jamil. She, she reminded me of this. I used to tweet her stuff before she was well known. Oh, well, that's worked to, out she well. She used to write nice stuff. Would have been oh, awkward good. if she'd like, become really good friends with your daughter. And yeah. It was another yeah. Princess Diana scenario. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, who else do I know that's under. God, that's a good question. <laughs> I know a lot of footballers, we wouldn't have heard of them. Listen, I... Well, some footballers I have heard of. No, we watch the Euros. We know with the young team. (laughs) Yeah. watch the Euros. Is that how you define modern football fandom? (laughs) Pathetic. Pathetic. We did work at GQ. They were always going on about... Ironically, though, not that many footballers. Yes, you did do Raheem Sterling. You got me the cuttings for Raheem Sterling. Yes, I did. (laughs) You also did Rachel Riley. You've done her twice. Was she a celeb crush? Rachel Riley. Rachel Riley. She was the celeb crush of The Office, was she not? She was. Was she? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, did her. Um, well, she, well, she's over 30, though, isn't she? She is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go... I'll, I'll have loads of over, under 30s once I've got You'll out. be able to think of some. I mean, I'm trying to think of who, like, the exciting... Yeah, fun, who are they? ...cool, like... Tell me. ...politically engaged people are. And I can't think of that many. Greta. Yes, well, she Greta's is Greta's cool. cool. Yeah, no, she is very cool. Taylor Swift recently, but she's over 30 now. Mm. Are you a Taylor Swift fan in particular? I, like, I love Taylor Swift's music. Yeah, I do. Do you? Oh, that's yeah. cute. I met Miley Cyrus with Boris Johnson. How's that? That's Ooh, that pretty good. good. Mm. What, the three of you in a conversation? And Grace was there. Th- how, and jo- and Boris about? Johnson introduced me to Miley Cyrus and said, this is the deputy mayor. And he said, hello, Miley. He said, he- uh, we were taken for a meet and greet before a concert. You know what, I interviewed Jeremy Corbyn once at the GQ Awards and he was presenting to Stormzy and I was so upset when I said to him, what's your favourite Stormzy song? And he couldn't think of one and he just said, the first one he ever did. I thought that Poor was shocking. Jeremy. If you're presenting an award to someone... Yes. Do a bit of research. Do a bit of research. Yeah, but even so, I, I, don't, I hate it when people pretend, like the other day, what's his name? Sunak talking about how he reads Jilly Cooper novels in his spare <laughs> yeah. time. Do you believe Oh, yeah, that? no. It's like those <laughs> pictures of him. Like, what's the one where he's like filling up someone else's like car oh, at the petrol yeah. station and then when he's got like so the pint infected. and you're like, you literally are the worst. Yeah. Also, it's not exactly, Jilly Cooper doesn't make you, it doesn't, no, it's, not, really. it's not really a, <laughs> no. a Luke. No, no. no. Anyway. Right, so we're going to... We're going to go to your oh, house. Get the books. The Paul Dacre Gates and then Great. go get the books. Are yeah. we going to meet Fiona? Thank you very much. She, I hope she's there, yeah. Because we can ask her who her celeb crush is. Yeah. Oh my God, yes. Yeah. To be continued listeners. Oh, um, I, I'm, uh, it would have been Paul McCartney back in, in the day. Back in the day. Yeah. 
Um, a cat, no, Cat Stevens, maybe. Oh, okay. Oh. Cat Stevens, maybe, yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Great pleasure.